This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we're going to talk about a group of birds that are often heard but rarely seen. Secretive marsh birds like the seaside sparrow and clapper rails are hard to study because of their reclusive nature. But at the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center, these birds are the subject of several studies. Jared Fira from the center joins the show this morning to talk about the birds. And as always, Dr. Major is here ready for your pet questions. To join the conversation, it's a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So, Libby, I think we'll start with you this morning. You've been uh, We've been tracking your progress as you were out on the West Coast for a vacation uh, and are making your way back. Uh, where are you reporting in from today? Okay, I'm back home. So I'm in Bolton, Mississippi, and glad to be here. Uh, we had a kind of a harrowing trip home, I feel like. Uh, we left just as the fires were um, really kicking up. And so we had one day that we traveled. It's five-day drive for us to get back here. So the, the first day was in heavy smoke and ash. And also, of course, we had a lot of concern for our family back in uh Corvallis, Oregon. They are in smoke and ash, and they're still in smoke, I think, today. I know yesterday it was still pretty bad. I haven't talked with her yet this morning, but so that kind of put a little damper on it, but it was a beautiful trip and um, had a great time, but we're glad to be home just in time for some nice weather here, and uh, the last two days we've been enjoying looking for orb weaving spiders. I know uh, we had a couple of uh, conversations, Java and Kevin, when um, I was gone about listeners with questions about orb weaving spiders. And uh, uh, one of our listeners had uh, sent in a picture of the golden silk orb weaver, which is a beautiful spider. So I thought I better get out in the woods and see if we had them again this year. It's It's a strange thing with golden silk orb weavers. They've They've only been here really for the last maybe 10, 15 years, I guess, that I've noticed. Um, A caller may know about it a little more. They are um, undergoing a range extension, maybe due to global warming, climate change, not quite sure exactly what's going on. But they're they're found further north than they used to be found. So I've got – I did find one out in the woods close to us we had we've got the black and uh, yellow garden spiders i sometimes call it charlotte spider from the charlotte web story but uh those spiders a lot of people just call them their garden spiders. some people call it the riding spider because uh, of the kind of the the um z's or zipper looking things that are in the web and there, there's a lot of intricate weaving to their webs tropical orb weavers spiny back several different kinds of spiny back those little uh spiny backs that have a triangle on their back a bright almost like a a caution sign it's a a, a white almost iridescent 
uh, triangle on their back, so they're easy to find. Some spiders kind of camouflage and want to blend into the environment, and then others have very showy coloration, and um, it's generally thought that that's to um, to a warning kind of a coloration that will warn birds and things, don't eat me, I don't taste good, get away from me kind of a thing. And I, I think either strategy must work well for them because I'm seeing lots of spiders, and I'll bet our listeners are. This is the time of year a little sad if you did read Charlotte's Web, I guess. that That's the sad part where the, the mom lays her eggs in the um, egg case, the egg sac. And uh, most spiders, it is hanging in some portion of her web or close to her web. And then she's going to die soon after she leaves those eggs. Uh, the egg case, understandably, is a target for a lot of predators. It's something to eat. Some birds eat them. A lot of other insects eat them. So she might have, you know, 300, 400 little baby spiders in there, and she's going to be lucky if two of them make it to mm. adulthood to reproduce. So it's it's a kind of a tough world out there, a competitive world for a lot of animals, and spiders are one of those. But anyway, it's a fun thing to get out and um, look for. They're, they're not – all spiders have some venom because that's how they kill their prey. But you can imagine the spider's prey is, is fairly small. They're going after bugs that are pests in our garden. So we like spiders and are glad when they come and live close to us because um, we garden and we like them to keep down the populations of other spiders. They, they do uh, – sometimes I find mosquitoes in the web, so that's good. But they use a little venom to kill that prey, not nearly enough venom to hurt us or to hurt our pets. So there, it's not something that you have to be afraid of being close to your house. Um, so do the orb weavers is, uh, make those large uh, webs? That's what I sort of, I guess, comes to mind when I, when I think about the, the few that I've seen. Yes, definitely. That's kind of the hallmark of being an orb weaver. They're going to make a pretty intricate web. Many of them, if you really get a kind of at an angle where you can look at it, they're they're massive things because that's their net. They're fishing for insects in the air, particularly at night, and uh, it needs to be pretty big. And some of them are beautifully uh, woven if you have time to look at them. Uh, Dr. Major, we have an email here. You know, uh, last week we were talking a lot about cats on counters and beds and that sort of thing. So we had someone who sent in a picture uh, of her cat, Bissell Jr. Uh, looks like a lovely uh, tabby cat. Looks like he, he or she is perched on a computer, you know, a, comp- a tower, uh, and is very intently focused on something that's not in the picture. But I know uh, that stare from my cat when they kind of uh, find out something they're interested in, they they track it very closely. Um, and I think I'm not alone in saying that, that my cat likes to be in the center of things. I know when I'm working on my computer or something, he likes to come up there and pretty much, you know, sit right in the middle of things. Or if you're reading a book or something, um, it, it, I guess dogs do that to some extent. And that's just... Are pets wanting some attention, I guess? You're, you're probably right with that. On the other hand, cats, maybe a lot of cats, I think, are try to be dominant or at least intrude into whatever you're doing. I'm not sure that I understand that totally. I do know as far as electronics that a lot of cats uh, like to be close to computer, uh, this sort of thing. 
we had one cat that would always get we had one better area of reception in the house as far as our wireless <laughs> and that cat would always get there it was on the stairs and uh we assumed that the cat was communicating somehow i don't know what it was or not <laughs> but yes they they do like to be uh it's hard to say center of attention because they may leave shortly after they disturb you uh there's there's their cats and they may fool you i've always said that one day you walk in and you actually have, even though it's the same body, but you have a cat that's different than it was the day before. So they can they can kind of switch and change change on you sometimes. Well, Kevin, I apologize for the the picture because um, at the I think it got kind of cropped. It's the cat is actually on the top of a uh, coffee maker. Okay. And I can tell and I can tell that the coffee pot is full. So the um the owner who sent in the picture is probably getting ready to go get some coffee and and play fence with uh with their cat at the same time. Yeah, now that you say that I can imagine uh as as you reach in to grab the cup of coffee uh, a paw lashes out at uh, at you while you try to do that. So all right, well that thank you. Because I did, yeah, you're right. It got cut off a little bit, so that's uh, that's interesting. So maybe the cat was uh, looking for a little cup of Joe to get started in the morning. Although uh, my cat certainly has enough energy without any kind of uh, caffeine booster, that's for sure. Uh, in the news, researchers have traced cats' personalities back to their owners' personality traits. Recent research suggests that cats may not be as cold and as aloof as many of us think, and that they may in fact bond with their owners like a child bonds with their parents. Therefore, just like a child's personality is impacted by their parent's personality, a cat's personality may be impacted by their owner. Big five personality traits are openness, conscientiousness, extraversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Dr. Major, again, you know, from your years as a vet, uh, do you see this maybe not only uh, in cats, but all of our pets that, that somehow kind of mirror the personality of their owners? Certainly, and one of the things you have to be careful of, you can't always tell somebody that, let's say you've got an aggressive dog, that the dog is taken after the owner or whatever, but we do see a lot of uh, interaction, and I do think it's very natural for some of the uh, cats, not all of them, some cats and some dogs really closely bond, but also assume some of the personality traits of the owner, which is remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's true. Uh, it, it works in, in humans, but also uh, in our pets as well. Right. It is time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll welcome our guest to the show. It's Jared Fira from the MSU Coastal Research and Extension Center. He'll talk about secretive marsh birds and the species that completely rely on salt and brackish marsh, such as clapper rails and seaside sparrows. And Dr. Major's here ready for your pet questions. So you can call in this morning. The number's one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. 
or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you're looking to join the conversation this morning with a question or comment, go to the phone and pick up the phone and call us at one mpb ring It's one 672 or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Sometimes I show my age, realizing now that you don't really have to go to the phone. You probably just have to reach in your pocket or purse and grab your phone. But uh, some old habits die hard, I guess. We've got a call to get to, and just a very quick uh, thing as we're on cats here. I would say that uh, the best toy or thing that my cat likes to play with are the expandable tunnels. This thing's made out of fabric and it has some, uh, it's about six feet long and uh, he can run up and down it. There's a couple of holes where he can poke in and out, but he loves to hide in there. And even when he runs down the hall, he'll occasionally divert to go through that tunnel. And, and again, as I was talking about with uh, the uh, the coffee maker and his stray paw, if you're walking down the hall and he's in there, uh, you're liable to get uh, a paw that comes out your way. So uh, they're fairly inexpensive. I think there's a lot of different makers of them, but I certainly, my cat uh, has enjoyed one of those little expandable tunnels that you can get. Uh, Ela is on the line with a cat question for us from Memphis. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Hi. Um, well, I have one comment and one question. The comment is, if the personality thing is true, then my cat's a little a-hole, and that means I'm an a-hole, and I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> second of all, She's 17 years old, and just recently, like in the past several months, we've started kind of leashing her and, you know, like outside, and she's been eating grass. And, you know, she's always had some digestive issues and, you know, kind of, you know, like all cats, you know, like thrown up and whatever, eating too fast or whatever it is, hairball. And for some reason, now that she's been eating grass, she hardly has that problem. She still does very seldom, though. And I just wanted to know what what the what. Like, I get it that it impacts the digestive system, but, you know, like, how much grass is a good amount of grass or whatever? Because I pretty much have to put her out every day now. That's a great question. Uh, a lot of times uh, our cats will, they crave some grass. I know you've seen uh, window boxes that are for sale, you know, where you uh, sprout grass and the cat cat will eat it. They actually pick out certain grasses and always caution people about uh, not letting the cat out where uh, the lawn has been sprayed with herbicides or any other type of uh, spray that might affect the cat. But I suspect in certain cases, just like this cat, they they use the fiber uh, to kind of cleanse their system uh, as long as she's not having uh, a situation where she would actually throw the grass up, this sort of thing. I think it's perfectly fine. I have seen cats that like to eat monkey grass, uh, and those cats nearly always throw up. Not necessarily, I don't think they're poisoned, but usually they will throw up, and this may be a reason sometimes why dogs and cats will eat grass. It stimulates them to throw up. So I don't know if that helps your uh, question or not, but obviously it seems to have helped her. Yeah, kind of, I guess. Um, she's only has, I think, ever thrown up grass one time um, that I recall, you know, in the past several months, so that's not really been an issue. Um, I was just curious. And her behavior has changed slightly. Uh, she used to come up in the bed with me at night, and now, for some reason, she likes to sleep behind the couch. 
which is unusual because she was never a behind-the-couch kind of cat, ever. She was on the couch, on the bed, on whatever, but never behind the couch. And now suddenly she's taken to sleeping behind the couch. Should I be worried about anything? or? I don't think I would worry about it. And cats, uh, as I said before, sometimes cats, you, you wonder if that's the same cat that we had yesterday or last <laughs> week. But they will change their habits. Uh, and uh, I have one cat that likes to sleep under the bed. Uh, and that's favorite place. Another cat will sleep on the bed. So I would say that may change shortly, depending on how they feel. But I don't think it's cause for concern. You said she's how old? 18? 17, yeah, but 17. I took her to her senior check, and she's perfectly fine, even, even her teeth are like a three-year-old, so I guess I'm a good that's, mom. But. You are, that's really great, and uh, not to uh, say anything other than the fact that, hey, that's remarkable, she's 17 and in good shape, and that's the way you want to keep her, so sounds like you're doing a good job. Alrighty, uh, thanks for the call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're going to visit now with our guests for today from the Mississippi State University Coastal Research and Extension Center, Jared Fira. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show, Jared. If you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in wanting to study these elusive birds that we're going to talk about. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um... So I, as you said, work at uh, Mississippi State University as a researcher. Um, I got started working with uh, secretive marsh birds probably in around 2012. I was first exposed to them working with Mississippi State uh, at the time. And I've been working with birds in general for the past nine years. And I got asked to come down here to study clapper rails, a specific species for my master's degree. Um, and so I've been down here for about six years studying clapper rails and now a whole suite of secretive marsh birds ever since. Uh, how many birds fall into the, the secretive marsh bird category? Well, there are... Um, I would say some target species that we have. Uh, there are probably about uh, eight or nine that we would throw into that category here in Mississippi um, specifically. Um, and these are mostly members of the family Rallidae. Um, so many of them have rail in their name, clapper rail, black rail, king rail um, are some of the major ones. And then um, American coot, Purple Gallinule or, or a couple others as well. So I, I give you credit for wanting to study a group of birds called secretive. Uh, <laughs> why is it so hard to study these birds and what makes them so secretive? So they live in pretty dense marsh grass um, in salt and brackish marshes along the coast. Um, there are some that live in freshwater marshes as well, but we focus mainly on the salt and brackish marshes here in Mississippi. Um, so they're difficult um, in that they tend to be very skulky birds, um, and none of them are very brightly colored either. So typically, they are more often heard than seen, uh, which can cause some difficulty for anyone who is a bird watcher or anyone trying to study these birds. Um, in the surveys that we do, we typically have to guess how far away the birds are um, and so you have to get really good at, at guessing how far away you hear a bird calling, which specific species is calling. Um, and maybe on the off chance, you'll get to see 
see some. Um, but it gets more difficult in the winter when they are a lot less active. Um, and so that's actually a big part of the project I'm working on now is tackling the even more difficult time of year where they don't call as frequently, they don't move around as frequently, um, and you basically have to walk straight lines through the marsh um, to try to find find them during surveys. Uh, you mentioned the coloration. Is that maybe uh, somewhat involved with uh, like a camouflage type of thing? Yes, definitely. Um, things like clapper rails in particular are very uh, brownish um, and sort of dull in color. Um, they do kind of have a, a bit of a more uh, reddish orange patch on their uh, breast. Um, and they have these little white uh, feathers, patches of feathers underneath their tails, um, which are thought to use as signaling. So when they're getting mad at each other, um, you'll often see them pumping their tail up and down. And, and that may be a signal of sort of aggression or, or interaction more likely between um, birds that meet each other out in the marsh um, when they get uh, get a little fired up. But in general, yes, they're, they're pretty well camouflaged. They're hard to see. Uh, give us a sense of, of the size of these birds. Are they relatively smaller as birds go? Uh, in general, I would say um, clapper rails you could think of as being a bit bigger than like a bobwhite quail. Um in body size, but they also have quite long legs um, because their primary mode of movement is walking and not flying. Um, and then they also have a longer bill, kind of more similar to like a shorebird. Um, so they're not small in terms of if you're thinking of like birds necessarily that are in your yard, but they're nowhere near as large as um, most like birds of prey or something that you would see um, flying around. You sort of touched on the techniques used to find them, and you, uh, you were saying primarily you have to train yourself to recognize uh, the calls. Is that the the main way of, of, of studying them and identifying them? Yes, uh, that is one of the um, major ways we do uh, surveys for these uh, for these birds. Um, so we typically have to boat out in the marsh here in Mississippi, um, and then we will go to selected points along the coast. And sometimes we can conveniently boat right up. Other times we have to walk into the marsh. Um, more often than not, we have to walk into the marsh. Um, and then we have uh, a speaker that will um, do a call play for the species. Um, there's actually kind of a pre-recorded 13-minute tape. Um, and so during those 13 minutes, uh, we'll have to listen for any of the species that we're targeting, um, which again include things like least bitter and king rail, clapper rail, common gallinule, purple gallinule, um, hide-billed grebe. Um, those are some of the main ones from our from our surveys. And, and they do make some sounds that can be kind of similar, uh, especially purple gallinule and common gallinule. Um, so it does take does take some practice especially to identify um, all of these species and some of the similar noises they can make that's kind of cool then so you're sort of calling out to them and then when they call back that helps you figure out who it is and, and maybe where they are yes yes that's exactly it um, so for our surveys we do uh, mark what direction they're heard in 
um, we orient north at our points. So we um, essentially mark what direction um, that we heard them in, about how far away we think they are. Um, we actually also do mark down if they're seen or heard. And then each of these species have sort of their own suite of calls that they make. And we actually write down which call type we heard them make. Um, and so the reason we do the playback, again, because they're secretive, um, we're trying to elicit a response in the later part of the survey so that we can see what birds possibly were missed during the silent portion of the survey where we're not calling to them. Uh, and you mentioned that in the wintertime, your your uh, technique changes. And the way you described it, it's almost like a grid search where you've got maybe a group of folks and you're each like taking a line to cover all the area of the marsh and trying to find the birds. Yeah, so it's sort of like that. Um, we actually, all of those points that we visit in the summer, um, we actually have sort of just a straight transect line that intersects that point. Um, and just one person actually will walk that transect line. Um, they can be anywhere from, I'd say, uh, I think 200 meters to around 600 meters for some of them. So you're essentially just traversing the marsh, marsh with a, a notebook, a GPS, and binoculars. And for the winter surveys, we, uh, we write down any species we detect um, because uh, the winter is much less studied um, in the marshes. So there may be important data for even non-secretive marsh birds um, and, you know, any birds that inhabit the marsh in the winter, um, but also for um, all of the secretive marsh birds, which is, again, the main focus of our work at this point. We're visiting today with Jared Fira talking about the secretive marsh birds. We're going to take a break, and as we mentioned, that the, the one way to identify them is by the calls that they make, and our producer, Java Chapman, has found a recording of the clapper rails. So as we go to break, we'll listen to the crapper, clapper rails and uh, give you a chance to call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. 
Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest for the hour, Jared Fuhrer from the Mississippi State Coastal Research and Extension Center. We're talking about secretive marsh birds today. Uh, also looking for your pet questions, and any time that you have a brush with wildlife or nature that you'd like to share with us, you can call in as well. If you ever miss a today's show, or if you want to go back and listen to a previous show, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app, or if you download the MPB Public Media app, you can access all of the local Think Radio shows that way. Join our conversation this morning with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Email animals at mpbonline.org. Our friend Bill from Greenwood is on the line. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for calling in this morning. Uh, hi, Mr. Farrell. Uh, yes, i got a question for Mr. Uh, uh, the Bird Guy and then, then to Dr. Major. Uh, so which one is first? <laughs> Go with the, the bird question first. Oh, oh, yeah, right. Uh, several years ago, I was out uh, looking around here, and uh, I kept hearing a strange sound. And I finally looked up there, and I saw a bird. It looked like it, it, it may have been colored. I'm not too sure, but looked him up in my book, and, and uh, from the, his uh, sound, it was a cuckoo. And I, I didn't think the cuckoo was living around Mississippi, but obviously... Uh, I believe there may be a migrant bird or something, but is that did I, was I right? Was that a cuckoo bird that you know that I saw? Uh, yes, that's that's completely possible. Here we actually have two species of uh, cuckoo. We have yellow-billed and black-billed cuckoos in Mississippi. Um, they do migrate through. Uh, but we also do have uh, yellow-billed cuckoos can potentially be around for more than just the migration period. Sometimes they are here all year. But you can get both species um, in spring and fall migration. Um, and I've seen plenty of yellow-billed cuckoos in the state. Oh, they're not very rare? They're kind of common? Uh, they are not uncommon but they are not always easy to see they actually are kind of sneaky um and they kind of because they're not brightly colored um they tend to be higher up in the trees so you don't tend to see them as as often as a lot of other species um but i would say they're they're not uncommon but they're not often seen uh, yeah you know the strangers i looked for a long time i didn't see anything kept looking and looking and I finally saw a glimpse of a bird so uh, well thank you very much I'll talk to the major then Dr. Major go ahead thank you sir oh hey Dr. Major I got these two little crazy kittens they're brothers and sisters and they developed uh, for some a foot fetish somewhat if you're barefooted they'll lick your feet to pieces and, and as soon as you put on your shoes they both get under your feet and they'll turn somersaults on your feet, keep you from walking, and if you start get walking, they might try to make up. Is this going to be a major problem? Have to be careful. How old are these kittens? Ah, uh, they're probably like a couple months old. Okay, you know this is fairly normal behavior for kittens, and uh, I'm glad you've got two. They always seem to do better than just the one and uh, they can entertain each other i'm sure they will lick your feet yes uh and uh just be careful they they like to flop over 
I'm not saying they're trying to trip you, but certainly they can if you're not careful. But uh, this is fairly fairly normal behavior for kittens. Yeah, well, they love each other. They lay together all the time, <laughs> and then they'll get up and they'll play, and they just do a lot of crazy playing. And sometimes they get kind of rough and hurt each other, but then they're right back licking each other. So they they're pretty happy. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good thing about and I, we've talked about this before. It's a good thing about having uh, more than one kitten. And the reason, it's a give-and-take thing. If uh, one of them bites the other's ear, uh, the other cat's going to respond. And they learn by that that, hey, pain, if I cause pain, I may get hurt. And some of the worst cases that we have as far as cats that bite people are kittens or cats that are raised by themselves and a lot of times they develop a tendency to bite people uh, and cause some issues so I like that idea I'm glad you've got two all right Bill thanks for your call this is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio today we're visiting with Jared Fira about uh, the secretive marsh birds Uh, Jared what uh, what is the diet for these birds so the diet for these species uh, varies a lot based on the different individual species actually so clapper rails that i've talked a good bit about um, they tend to eat a lot of fiddler crabs Uh, so in the summer especially um, some of the estimates is that 95 to 99 percent of their diet is uh, fiddler crab or mostly fiddler fiddler crab Um, and then things uh, like least bitterns they're probably eating similar things as well Um, Fiddler crabs probably comprise many of their diets or a significant portion of their diets in the uh, spring and summer. Um, things like purple gallinules and common gallinules are going to eat more insects um, that they find on floating vegetation or floating through the marsh. So they're going to be eating a lot of invertebrates as well, but typically they're not eating as heavily on things like fiddler crabs. They don't have as large of a bill. They don't really probe around as deep as something like uh, um, a clapper rail or a king rail would. Um, and least bitterns also have a kind of longer, sharp bill, so they actually tend to be able to eat a lot of the small fish um, that you'll find pushed up into the marsh grass as well. Yeah, I looked up a picture of the clapper rail, and that was one thing that caught my eye was that uh, kind of that long, uh, thin uh, bill. Uh, and so that uh, may be helpful in in securing uh, the food that it eats. Yes, it definitely is. They will eat them on the surface, but they'll also use that bill to get down into the fiddler crab burrows. Um, and so they'll probe down in there and, and pull them out of there as well. Um, but clapper rails will also use that bill to... Um, eat mussels um, and things of that nature that are up on uh, washed up on shore. Um, they they like seafood of of all varieties. Um, they've been known to eat, you know, fish carcasses that come in, especially in the winter when there aren't as many fiddler crabs out, um, and also things like snails um, that are climbing up on the vegetation again when fiddler crabs are not as abundant. So um, are these migratory birds, and if so, when is Mississippi their home? So for clapper rails uh, specifically, we typically we think that most of the birds we have here actually are here year-round. Um, it is possible that 
some of the clapper rails from the northeast come down here in the winter, but most of them actually are going to end up in Florida and South Georgia. Um, we don't have a lot of evidence suggesting that they come here to Mississippi actually from the Atlantic coast. So our birds tend to stay fairly well uh, in place as far as as far as we know. Um, but things like purple gallinule are actually migratory. So they will uh, be here in the spring and summer. And then about now, um, many of the purple gallinules will start heading south. Um, typically, they could end up in the Caribbean or they'll end up going down the coast of Mexico into northern Central America and northern South America. And so these marshes that they call home, where in Mississippi are these mostly coastal? Yes. Uh, well, so for some of them, they are mostly coastal. Uh, clapper rails specifically are coastal. Um, but the other species that we study here in Mississippi can be found in freshwater marshes as well. Um, so if you are up in the northern part of the state, you could see uh, purple gallinules, common gallinules. Uh, King rail is one in particular that looks very similar to clapper rail. Um, we get a few of them here on the coast, but they tend to like freshwater versus the clapper rails like the saltwater environments. So you could get king rails um, in the northern part of the state, and they look and act very similar to clapper rails. Um, and they're even known to hybridize in certain parts of their range. Um, so, yeah, you can find many of these north, um, but some of them, like clapper rails and seaside sparrows, you're really only going to find here on the coast. We've got a caller on the line. Our friend Sue has called in from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good to have you on the air with us. Good morning. I'd like to ask your guest, um, what happens to the shorebirds when tropical storms and hurricanes come? Where, where can they take refuge? Where do they go? What What happens to them? Uh, it depends on the, the species. So a lot of shorebirds um, are able to, to fly, or some of them will try to hunker down on the beaches, depending on how severe the storm is. Uh, but things like clapper rails and a lot of these marsh species, they tend to hunker down for the storm. And actually, uh, this past spring, uh, let's see, tropical storm Cristobal came through, and we actually had hundreds of live clapper rails float in from most likely Louisiana and the Barrier Islands into the beaches of Biloxi. So for things like clapper rails that don't fly particularly well, um, they'll try to hunker down as long as they can and they may get washed out by the storms. All right, Sue, always good to hear from you. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines for just a minute. Uh, Leonard is in Nesbitt. Good morning, Leonard. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I'm calling about a problem I have. I rescued three baby raccoons about five months ago. They imprinted on me. Uh, they had them since they didn't have their eyes open, and the mother raccoon got displaced. And I need to know, is, is there a way to get a license to have a raccoon as a pet? Uh, and if not, at what age can I release these raccoons? They... They love fried chicken and marshmallows, so <laughs> what I can do to let, let them go or maybe to keep them as a pet. Libby, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? 
Oh, yes. And many people try to keep them as pets. And most everybody I know ends up regretting it. Uh, technically, it is illegal for you to have it right now. So I would suggest you call your conservation officer and just tell them your predicament. Generally, they are not going to give you a permit, though. But probably what what I would advise you to do, and I think your conservation officer will too, is to get it to a rehabber who will start a process of, of kind of born freeing it. You know, it'll, um, it'll take a little adjustment because we need to get it off the marshmallows and the fried chicken. In the long run, I think the raccoon's going to be better off. He'll learn how to be a raccoon and you will probably um, end up being being grateful that you did they're pretty rough if you keep them in your house as an adult they like to tear things up they like to make nests of the underside of your couch and get in your um towel closet and make a mess in there it's uh they're not real easy to keep as a pet and uh troy you might want to chime in on what he needs to do as far as um disease carrying you know, this can be a problem, and uh, I was just visualizing these three raccoons, but, you know, they it's almost like they really have thumbs. They can open any cabinet that you've got. Uh, I don't know about the refrigerator, but if they know where those marshmallows are, I'm sure they'd go <laughs> after them. Uh, the, the thing is, uh, in most cases, they, gosh, I hate to get in this too much because I have had people that have raccoons as pets. And we uh, actually uh, advise against it, and we're really not supposed to vaccinate wild an wild animals as far as any vaccinations. They can have some of the similar diseases that uh, our dogs can have, so that's important to know. Uh, and uh, they're susceptible to those diseases. These babies probably don't have any exposure to that. Uh, my suggestion would be not to let them go close to Kentucky Fried Chicken or Baskin Robbins or something like that because they would have a field day, I'm sure, if they could get in. That was a joke. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, anyway uh, I would contact the conservation officer in your area and discuss this with them. Libby's actually right. They do imprint, and you've said that as well, that they bonded with you. And uh, that can be an issue. Uh, so they need to be kind of reconditioned before letting them out into the wild. Best of luck with that. And, you know, I might chime in just one more time just to, I don't want to make you feel bad about this. You've done a good deed taking care of these little raccoons. But I, probably the next step, the next thing you can do to do your good deed is to um, let them be raccoons. So that would be mean that you need to get them to a rehabber so that we can start letting them go all right leonard we appreciate your call this is creature comforts and it's time for our last break uh, our producer java chapman found another secretive marsh bird uh, sounds that we're going to play on the way out it's the seaside sparrow and we get back we'll ask jared to tell us a little bit about that bird we are visiting today with jared fira from the mississippi state coastal research and extension center still time for you to work in a phone call at one eight seven seven mpb ring or email us at animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the show after this.
A contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today, Jared Fira from the Mississippi State Coastal Research and Extension Center. We've been talking throughout the hour about secretive marsh birds. And uh, Jared, as I mentioned, uh, Java found the call of the seaside sparrow. And we played that as we went to that last break. If you would tell us a little bit about that bird. Sure. I'm going to start by saying I think the the calls played were actually backwards. So what we just heard was a clapper rail. Okay. (laughs) And what we heard at the first was actually the seaside sparrow. Um, Just just so everyone at home knows. um, Yeah, the clapper rails tend to be a lot louder and more raucous because they are a much bigger bird. Um, But so seaside sparrows are a little bit different than the others in that they are a songbird. Um, And so they're quite similar to some of the sparrows you might see around your yard, um, except for the fact that they live pretty much exclusively in salt marsh. Certainly here in Mississippi, they do. In Texas, they actually have a little bit different behavior where they almost live in some uh, salt scrub habitat. Um, But here in Mississippi, they, they really like the more salty marshes. They don't go too far into the brackish marsh. Um, And so like a typical songbird, um, they males have a song that they sing, which is what we heard a couple breaks ago, um, and then they nest in the marsh. And our seaside sparrows, again, we believe, are here year-round, although they're probably not as stuck in one site as a clapper rail is. So they probably move around the Gulf Coast um, to some degree, Um but not necessarily making a long-distance migration like we think about a lot of songbirds uh, making. So we've talked about the secretive nature of these birds, but if someone were uh, down in an area where they have habitat and somehow came across them, would you recommend, like we do with a lot of wildlife, and that is give them their space? Maybe if you see them, lucky enough to see them, enjoy them from far, but maybe try not to interact with them? Yes, Uh Fortunately for these guys, they are in salt marsh where not many people want to walk. Uh, so they don't typically have too much trouble with uh, interactions with people. Um, but there are several good places on the coast where you can see and hear these guys. Um, Pops Ferry Boat Launch in Biloxi, uh, the Lake Mars Boat Ramp in Ocean Springs Gulf, uh, Gulf Park area, um, where you can easily stand on either a pier sidewalk or the side of the road and um, potentially see them and almost certainly hear um, clapper rails, seaside sparrows, and possibly some of the other species as well. Uh, if uh, we piqued someone's interest about uh, secretive marsh birds this morning and, and someone wanted to try to learn a little bit more, do you have any, maybe some online resources that you might suggest? Uh, let's see. There are several online resources. So for identification, there's always um, – Cornell's website or the Macaulay Library. Uh, they have uh, All About Birds is another um, bird identification and sort of little background for some of these species. Um, we're currently working on getting our lab website going, so unfortunately I don't have one to give you on that, but you can always be in contact with myself or uh, my advisor here. And then there's also um, sort of the Atlantic Coast equivalent um, 
SHARP, it's called, which is the Salt Marsh Habitat and Avian Research Program uh, in the Atlantic coast that'll have a lot of information about the same species. Um, only their information is going to be more specific to the Atlantic coast, um, but very similar overall. All right. Uh, we got about a couple of minutes left, and we do want to leave people with the correct information. So we're going to replay the bird calls, and you can help us properly identify uh, which ones we're listening to. So let's play the first set. So that's the seaside sparrow. Okay. And this is the clapper rail. You know, I, it's crazy the way we sometimes try to put human characteristics or whatever. But when I heard the 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 clapper rail there, I, for whatever reason, the word sassy came to my mind. I, uh, <laughs> is they that... are yes, <laughs> that is very accurate. They are very uh, lively, lively birds, um, especially in the early spring when they're fighting over territories and mates and things. Um, they can be very loud and very raucous and. We actually do try to catch these birds uh, for some of my master's work. Um, and so being in the marsh with them, uh, you can hear them running around. Um, we kind of joke that they're almost like little velociraptors um, in the modern age because they go around tearing up fiddler crabs and making all kinds of noises to each other uh, socially, whether it be this is my territory or, hey, where's my mate type of situation. So they're very, very lively birds. This has been fascinating. I, I had never heard about these birds before. And, Jared, you did a great job uh, helping us understand and, and sort of giving us introduction. Eric and Liberty, Bill, Forest City, sorry that we won't get to your calls. We've run out of time. But you can always email the show. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. Today, to hear today's show or previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Jared Fira, I'm Kevin Farrell. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.